The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop donating NFR copies of Windows ME to your local food bank and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 392 with guest Ron Jacobs, recorded live Monday, October 20th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, when life throws you a curveball... Just whack it. Carl Franklin. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We're still at uh, TechEd in uh, Barcelona, Spain. The IT week, which is kind of odd for you. Yeah, well, it's not so odd for you, but it is odd for me. I've been just having a great time. Yeah, we were out all day today, weren't you? Yeah, I did. I went to the aquarium and uh, bummed around in the middle of town and... Uh, sat and played some cards and had some good meals and just uh, tomorrow we're going to the Sagrada Familia. Ah, gee, it's tough to be Carl Franklin. Yes, this is definitely uh, the. This is definitely a. It's interesting how it worked out because IT Week and Dev Week are back to back. Right. Dev Week is uh, the same week as Dev Connections, and you and I are both going to Dev Connections, but you're doing a you're doing a Kim trip this time. Oh yeah, I'm doing it's nonstop for me. PDC, then uh, Tech at EMEA, and then Dev Connections, and then we're both going to Ordev as well. It's been a month solid. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you're getting a couple days off, but I'm I'm flying right from here to Vegas. Which is good, but yeah, I, I got to go home sometime. Otherwise, you know, it's it's completely insane. Meantime, uh, actually, I've done some great recordings for Run As Radio uh, here at uh, at Tech at EMEA. It's been awesome. 
So tell me what you're doing. You're, you did Speaker Idol heat number three today? Yeah, the heat number three is done, so the finals are tomorrow. Uh, did some f- fine interviews for, uh, for Run As. Uh, actually talked about Oslo and Dublin, which are really, you'd think, are dev technologies, but there's a whole significant IT side to that about management and administration that's really interesting. So we had a great conversation about that. Well, it's basically SQL Server-based development. Um, to some degree, yeah, but it's also, I mean, on the Oslo side, it's that whole modeling of IT infrastructure and SLAs, which is, for me, very interesting. I don't know if many developers care about it. Well, after, actually, you're creating languages for, for for IT folks to do their job better, if you think about it. Absolutely. That's exactly where that was going. So that was a great talk. I'm looking forward to putting some shows around that. All right. So uh, let's just get right to the show that we recorded previously, and, uh, and we'll uh, catch you next time from Dev Connections in Las Vegas. See you later. And Richard, our guest today is none other than Mr. Ron Jacobs. He is a senior technical evangelist in the Microsoft Platform Evangelism Group based at the company headquarters in Redmond, Washington. Ron's evangelism is focused on Windows Communication Foundation and Windows Workflow Foundation. Since 1999, Ron has been a product and program manager on various Microsoft products, including the .NET framework. It's kind of funny how you say that. He's been a product. And program manager. (laughs) Who knew? A product manager and a program manager, uh, we mean, on various Microsoft products, including the .NET Framework, WCF, and Complus. A top-rated conference speaker, author, and podcaster, Ron brings over 20 years of industry experience to his role of helping Microsoft customers and partners to build architecturally sound and secure applications. Welcome, Ron Jacobs. Thank you very much. Artcast, what a gas that was! Yeah, absolutely, it was kind of a an interesting experiment that went far beyond my expectations. It is pretty amazing. How many did you do? Oh man, I, I, there's over 300 episodes. Wow! Uh, and you know, I was just cranking those things out left and right, and um, yeah, it was it was great fun. So your focus, of course, being Artcast, was on architecture. Right, and after a while, you um, you you went to work for Microsoft because you were doing this before you worked for Microsoft, right? Oh no! Oh, oh no! Actually, uh, I've been working for Microsoft about nine years now. Oh, uh, so yeah, so I you know I just started this. Actually, it's kind of funny how it happened. Was when I was in the Patterns and Practices group, I was you know tasked to do webcasts, and the marketing guy there at the time said, I want to do a webcast, you know, like every Thursday. And I found that just doing a webcast, you know, you're sitting there in your office and yeah. you're just kind of yakking into a telephone for an hour. Right. Uh, I began to bore myself. Yeah. It was so bad, you know. So I started uh, inviting different people in the group to come into my office and we would do it on the speakerphone, you know, and just talk back and forth because it was more interesting. Yeah. And these became pretty popular. And then over time, I eventually started doing them at Microsoft Studios. Uh, and, and they became really popular there. And then, uh, and then I started the podcast after that. Okay. Yeah, for some reason, I was under the, uh, under the idea that you were not working for Microsoft. And then you went to work for Microsoft. Maybe it's just because that's the pattern I see with all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> You know, first you do something cool, then you get hired, and then you continue to do it for a while, and then you stop. Yeah. So, uh, are you still doing ArtCast? No. No, actually, um, last February, I took a new job because uh, 
I had heard about the things that were happening um, with Oslo and WCF and WF, and uh, I was really excited about the um, the future that's coming here because I think we're really going to break some amazing ground. And of course, now that PDC has happened and you know the word is getting out, uh, I'm sure that people are getting a, a their first look at this stuff. And I yeah. said, man, that is. That's an amazing opportunity. So when I, I heard they were looking for somebody to kind of uh, take on these things, I said, I think I'm going to give that a shot. Okay. So change jobs, and that's the end of that. You were doing – our cast became a, a a video cast for a while there, too. Yeah, actually, there's, I think, about 100 episodes of, of video. And uh, even that was kind of an interesting experiment because we didn't – we didn't know what would happen, but I was uh, I went down to Australia and met with the guys at Common, uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, did five video episodes with them, and uh, it, it was just amazing how how well that turned out. And people all over the world tell me they watch those and watch the you know you, you guys know how it is. I mean, it's a, the the reach of podcasts is truly amazing. Uh, I, everywhere I go, I run to people like I listen to your show. It's just really right. cool. Yeah, we were in Bulgaria a few weeks ago, and I was, and just, you know, people out there who listen to us on a regular basis, you never think about it. It's just so all over the world. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. So tell us about what we saw at PDC. Well, you know, um, there, there's kind of three big areas that I think a lot about um, with relation to what what we came out with at PDC. And, of course, um WF and WCF uh, have have really become very central to the way in which we think people are going to build business logic in distributed applications out in the future. And, you know, WCF has been around now a couple of years, and, you know, people are getting used to it, and a lot of people have built apps with WCF and web services, and, and it continues to be just really rock solid. Uh, I think one of the big uh, interesting pieces here is that now – you're going to take workflows, and we see workflows in WCF coming together even more than what they did before. So, you know, we think a lot of people are going to be putting their business logic into workflows and taking advantage of these declarative style of uh, development, uh, using models to drive their systems more, and business rules. And in, in it's really... I think going to have a very profound effect on the way that people build applications out in the future. But, you know, maybe your first reaction when you look at this is like, well, you know, gee, I kind of like to write code. You know, I, I don't know that I'll ever write workflows, but I think when you begin to see the whole picture coming together with the models and the services with Oslo, then you see there's a very compelling case for making these kind of moves. Well, then the reality is you're still solving problems. You're still performing the analysis, and you're still using your brain. It's just that when you sit down to solve the problem, you're you're using angle brackets instead of code. Yeah, although I don't think uh, that many people will actually uh, you know fire up Notepad and start writing angle brackets to just spew out their XAML files. Um, you know, some people might, uh, but I mean, you look at what's happened with WPF. I mean, if go back a couple of years, you know, if you were writing a um, a smart client application with Windows Forms, right? You you pop up the design, you're driving, dropping controls. We all know that behind the scenes, 
uh, Visual Studio's got this designer file, and if you look in that designer file, you see this button, that field, and so forth, and it sets up all the properties. And we all kind of knew that that file exists, but we didn't really, you know, yeah, you could have hand-coded that, but you didn't. You used the designer to kind of drop things around. Um, okay, great. So we think about it. What that file did was when that form was created, it newed up a bunch of controls, set their properties, and bound them all together, so then you're good to go. And then when WPF came along, now we got this kind of new language for describing the UI that I want. You know, here's some XAML. Uh, it has some controls. And if I look in the XAML file, I see the equivalent of what that designer file had. Here's some controls, some properties. And, you know, when you hand that XAML file to a runtime, the WPF runtime, it moves up a bunch of objects, initializes them, and then, bam, you're good to go. So what we're saying now is, well, really, a workflow is the same idea. I have a bunch of objects that know how to collaborate together to do some kind of business process, right? And uh, I, I'm going to set up some properties on these things. I have when We call these objects activities and workflows. So I have an activity that knows how to call a web service. I have an activity that maybe updates a database, and an activity that waits for something to happen. And I got a bunch of these activities that together can collaborate around some kind of process of, that I need to get done. And um, the same thing happens. There's a XAML file that describes how all these activities are stitched together, their properties are initialized, and then you hand them to a runtime that knows what to do with them, and it fires off, and there you go. It's got a very sort of uh, uh, declarative model to it. I'm just going to describe what I want you to do. You go figure out how mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. Well, the whole world is going declarative. Everything, you know, WPF, WCF, Workflow, um, Silverlight. I, I mean, everything is essentially going that way. Yeah, it's very interesting trend because I think if you go declarative, you introduce the possibility of raising the abstraction to a level where the runtime environments can give you more. Let, let me just illustrate what I mean. I mean, the whole history of, uh, of programming has been a history of raising the abstraction, right? I mean, they started with, you know, writing down to CPU instructions and machine language to assembly language to uh, C and languages like that and then C++. And then, then when we went to managed languages, I vividly remember the first time, you know, writing a Java program and then writing a .NET program and thinking, man, you know... Uh, this is this is very different. I'm not I'm not managing the memory anymore, and, and uh, at first I was a little uncomfortable with it. But after a while, I, I accepted the fact that the runtime managed runtime environment was going to do things for me that I would have to do anyway, and it was going to do them better than I probably would have done them. So now I you know I never want to look back. I I really I don't want to go back to writing unmanaged code, and because I accepted. The abstraction raising, I got a lot more benefit out of the runtime platform. And even when you think about it, if you're writing C-sharp code or whatever, uh, the runtime's making decisions at the very, very last moment, that JIT compiler, uh, that allows it to develop something that's just perfect for the environment in that given moment. So now if we say, well, okay, I've got some business logic I want to have execute. Um, if I write that in imperative code, 
I make a lot of assumptions about the environment that may or may not be true at runtime. Um, you know, but I'm kind of taking over the whole world there. But if I'm willing to live with this higher abstraction, now this runtime environment can do something for me that maybe I couldn't otherwise do. Like, um, well, what if I said, you know, today it's running here on my server here in premise, but tomorrow I want to deploy this into the cloud and I want that workflow to run the cloud. That would be great, yeah. except for <laughs> except for when you run things in the cloud, you have to live in a sandbox, right? Because the people who run those servers in the cloud, they're not going to let you do just anything you want, right? You, you have to accept I'm, I'm running in this sandbox. So if I have written my code in this declarative way, uh, the runtime environment can tell me if I'm doing things that are going to step outside that sandbox without, you know, I can have tools that would tell me and make it easier to deploy and manage and move it around in different environments and make decisions at runtime uh, that are right for my situation. I just, yeah, find it's an interesting idea that I'm so far away from the language now that the actual implementation, uh, uh, how it's it's generated is, is uh completely independent of it of course I, I guess that's really been true with the since the clr anyway that how it was actually yeah, sure. compiled was almost secondary to the point when you start looking about Silverlight, where suddenly that code is now running on a mac and, and that was the, the power of, of taking that bet and saying you know what i'm going to write to this managed environment so now you can move it around run it on the mac it's okay uh and that's great and that's you know that's what i want to have happen the same kind of power uh, by, by moving up a level. But let me just say, we're not saying that code is going away anytime soon. I mean, you're still going to have code. What, what you're going to do, though, if you want to make your code available in this kind of workflow environment, you're going to author an activity. And so if you've authored an activity in uh, previous workflow, in workflow 3.0 or 3.5, you know, it's kind of complicated that's an understatement, okay? It was, it was difficult. Let's just be honest here. It was difficult. It was extremely difficult. Um, so we've done a lot of work in 4.0 to make it much, much easier to author activities. The workflow uh, runtime environment is very consistent and composable across the board, and the designer uh, surface is a lot easier to extend and work with and develop my own custom UI using WPF. Uh, with the designer. So the experience is that, you know, like a typical service, let's imagine a web service. If I have written a web service in WCF, say, in the past, maybe I receive a message, uh, I might, you know, check a database, I call another web service, I update another thing, and then I return a response. Right? That's pretty simple code, right? It's, you know, 30, 40 lines of code. Uh, and that's kind of a, a program that's sort of coordinating the operations of, of some other things. Well, so that kind of program would probably be turned into this very declarative XAML uh, that's talking to a bunch of activities that know how to do their discrete parts. But then what about the, the piece of code that maybe is uh, updating that database? Well, that might be turned into an activity. Uh, and dropped into that XAML. So, yeah. yeah, you still have a mix. You have some code, but you also have XAML that's going to drive it. Yeah, and that's that's the case no matter what technology you're using. If you're using WPF, WF, WCF, 
the code I uh, also gets to be a lot more focused and specialized on on logic and processing rather than you know dealing with all the all the other stuff. Well, and you know it's really the people who are most excited about this are the uh, ISVs, right? They're the guys who are out there writing. Uh, you know, like our like our own internal the guys like who write dynamics, the CRM or those kind of things. Uh, I used to write enterprise software back in the day. I was down in Silicon Valley in the '90s. You know, somehow I didn't become a millionaire then. I don't know how I missed it, but anyway, <laughs> I, I was I was down there. You know, writing enterprise software, and we always had this kind of thought in our mind that if I'm writing, you know, some kind of CRM software for you. Um, I know that the thing I'm writing is not exactly what you want, right? You're going to want to customize it. And back then, there were people who made tons and tons of money working on, you know, and they still do, on SAP and other kind of big enterprise software packages. And, you know, you go buy this package and you put it in place, and then there's this whole wave of customizations that goes on. And it's all, all, all done at the code level. Well, you know, people have recognized today that that's a very high-risk approach, both for the ISV and for their customer. Because once you've started opening up the source code and people start doing heavy customization on it, you got a problem. What happens when the next version comes out? Oh, we have to try to provide, roll forward those customizations to the next version. And you got this big problem going on, lots of expense and time. It's just a pain in the neck. Especially bit us hard with components, third-party components. Oh, yeah. So here's what the ISV community has said to us. They said, look, we know we need to allow customization, but we have to find a way that allows people to easily customize without this, you know, getting into the source code and changing a bunch of code. Well, workflows allow this uh, because they give you this great model for extensibility. So if I'm, you know, the CRM vendor... Um, I can describe the business logic of a process using a workflow with a bunch of, you know, pre-built activities. And I can say to you, my customer, I say, hey, you know, if you want to change this, you can go in and change the workflow a little bit. You can drop your own activities in there. This is the place where we have set up for you to customize. And then uh, I can use the business rules engine to kind of drive the, the way the thing works on the back end. And if you want to change the business rules, Hey, that's just simple. There's, it's an XML file. You just go in and, and change that. The business rules change for you. And then if I'm uh, hosting this for you, what's even better is that it makes it very simple for me because now I can store the uh, XAML for your business logic in, in a database. You know, So when you log in, I see what company you're from. I load your XAML. I execute your business process. Somebody else logs in. I get theirs. And it's really simple for me to keep everybody separate. Uh, instead of having kind of custom code trees, now I've got uh, these different workflows, just XAML files. Yeah, you can use the file system for that, for crying out loud. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or stick it in a database or whatever. Wherever, wherever uh, it goes. So, you know, but here's, here's the other really uh, exciting thing that, uh, that we kind of launched into at, um, at PDC which is this whole thing about rest. You know, uh, I, I can still distinctly remember three or four years ago, you know, I was out traveling around conferences, tech heads and whatnot, talking to people about SOA. And people 
started springing up at these events, and they would go, hey, Ron, what do you think about rest? And I just had no clue. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know about it, didn't know what to say. And so six months ago, when I started into this job, uh, they said, hey, we're, we want you to get really up to speed on rest because uh, we're going to do some things in WCF to make it really, really easy for people to, to do restful services. So it's been uh, quite a journey for me to learn uh, about rest. And this at the PDC, we, um, we released the first drop of the WCF rest starter kit. Ah, right. Which is, uh, yeah, it's just a, uh, it's a collection of templates and a new DLL that includes some new features for WCF. And we're releasing this on CodePlex. So the WCF team is very interested to kind of collaborate with the community. And we wanted to put it out there early instead of saying, like, oh, you got to wait for .NET 4. We're going to put it out there now so you can get it, start working with it. Now, there's no guarantee that what's in there is going to end up in .NET 4. Let's just be honest about that. There's no guarantee. But, but we, we just want to learn from the community and see what people think about this so that they can build RESTful services. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to Telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. Yeah, the thing I always found interesting about REST is that, well, it's just a it's just a subset of of HTTP of uh, you know what we're already doing. Uh, it's just a ge- a more general term for how HTTP works. You know, at first I kind of had the same reaction. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, we've been doing web services and SOAP is goes over HTTP, so what's right. the big deal? But if you talk to these REST people. Uh, it's like they grew up on the other side of the planet, okay? They have a whole <laughs> different perspective on this. <laughs> they just do, you know? Now, you have to remember that um, in 99, 2000, when I first joined Microsoft, the big driving force behind web services and SOAP uh, was interop between .NET and Java. Right. I mean, you know, here we were with the data center. I've got Microsoft stuff, can't talk to the Java stuff. And that was the big headache everybody was trying to solve. And all the big players got on board, and we solved it with the WS Star specifications. And, and you know, then there was these REST guys. And they, and they said, you know, what you guys did, it's, it's okay, but it's kind of overkill for what we want. Right. And, you know, in fact, if you, if you just fire up a, a default WCF service with the WSHTTP binding and all the defaults set, and you send, like, a very small message across the wire, 
you'd just be astonished at how much XML and how much HTTP traffic flows back and forth. It's this truly amazing conversation. Yet, uh, the REST guys go like, I don't need all that. I, I want to write some JavaScript, and I have my little PHP site, and I don't know how to do WS star blah, blah, blah stuff. I, I had one guy told me he calls it WS Death Star. I never understood it either, but it's because, you know, I listen to people like Michelle LaRue Bustamante who say, you know, out in the real world of corporate America where you have all these disparate machines, it's the requirements for these things to talk to each other are so great that it just naturally becomes more complex. So um, I guess the the whole rest idea is is for everybody to 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 just kick it down a notch, isn't that true? Well, okay. So here's here's the the day that I had the epiphany about rest. I was uh, kind of researching. I'm looking at like Yahoo and Flickr and Delicious and all these guys and their rest APIs, and it hit me. Like I I was looking at the Yahoo Web Search API. Uh, it is possible for me to call their API by passing just, you know, not even a very long URI with a bunch of query parameters, right? Right. And then I said, hey, if I can call that with, with, like this right from the browser, I went to Notepad, I do file open, I paste in that URI, and bam, Notepad can call their API. Yeah. And I, and I said, man, if Notepad can call that API, anything can. But I guess the complexity comes in when you get beyond just simple strings and numbers and things and you get into more complex types and types that are, you know, that are actually XML types and namespaces and things like that. Isn't that true? Isn't that where so... No, not really. really? No, because, I mean, REST can do all that stuff too. I mean, it can pass any kind of XML that you want. The the big difference comes into into the protocol support, right? Uh, that like the WS star stuff does. But, but what I'm saying is that if I want to expose an API on my website and I want anybody anywhere in the world using any kind of device or programming language to be able to call my API, I would think seriously about doing it with REST because REST is so darn simple that they can call it from a phone, from a you know, whatever platform programming language you want, everybody supports HTTP because the web is so prevalent. But that's just really the first step of this progression because RESTful people will tell you, it's funny, you know, they talk about RESTful. Um, yeah, RESTful. <laughs> and they're always arguing about it, right? Like if you pick up the book RESTful Web Services, the guy, the author there, it's kind of taking shots at all these sites. You're like, well, this one, they say they're rest, but they're not really very restful, you know, and they kind of go back and forth like that. And so people, I've never heard a, a, a person who's creating a soap-based web service say, soapful. well, your service isn't very soapful. <laughs> yeah, it's not very soapy. Yeah. Soap compliant you, you is what that. they say. Yeah. <laughs> Why do, you don't hear that because there's a soap specification. And if you, if you want to know, is it soap or is it not, you just go look at the spec and you can tell. So would, if they did, if they didn't have enough restfulness, would they be restless? <laughs> Possibly, and there's no rest for the weary here either. Because uh, no, there, man, there is, <laughs> there, it is the last show of the no, day. Mark. There's no rest specification, so you can't go and say what is rest or what isn't. So they always argue about it, right? But 
what restful people think is that the web and and these services are more about exposing resources than they are about exposing APIs. So instead of saying like, uh, oh, my service has you know these verbs like get customer and you know update this or put that or whatever, uh, they say no, really you're you're resources that your site exposes are a bunch of nouns. Like, so in this example I did at my PDC session, uh, I have this mythical winery, this coho winery, right? And they have some nouns that they expose. They have a wine catalog that has these wines, and they have um, reviews that people did, wine tasters and so forth. And so you're exposing a set of nouns as resources that are available through your site. And so you think differently about the design of your services because of this. The other big uh, turning point in my thinking was that the big deal about RESTful services is that you want to create services that work the way the web works. Right. Now, if you think about it, SOAP tunnels through HTTP. It does. It's not actually yeah. a friendly protocol for it. It just manages to travel that way. Yep. Exactly, right. It, it tunnels through, it's a XML tunneling through a post. And so as far as the web infrastructure is concerned, it'll work, but it doesn't really, you know, know what to do with it. And if you read the HTTP specification, you find that there's a very rich architecture for, you know, supporting caching and all kinds of things like this that, uh, that the infrastructure of the web understands. And SOAP doesn't really take advantage of this. So what we wanted to do is make it very possible for you to create a service, expose it, and have the web understand it and cache it and treat it appropriately, just like it does all kinds of other web content. And it turns out that uh, it's been very fun, and we managed to come up with ways to make this darn simple. And if you've built WCF services in the past, you'll find very familiar concepts about creating service contracts and operation contracts and data contracts and all that, but yet you'll expose them uh, over just kind of the raw HTTP layer. Cool. Yeah. I just have lived, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that was the exclamation point of all exclamation points. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Of all the things we're doing here, I think the uh, the rest stuff has the people who have seen it early have just been like, "Wow, this is really really exciting." And I think uh, I think there's a little bit of a of a shift going on here. But let me be really clear, just really really crystal clear. I feel like a politician when I say <laughs> <laughs> um, that we're not saying that soap is bad or rest is good or whatever. I mean, look, our position is. If you want to build a web service, if you want to build it in SOAP, great. SOAP is great. Go build it in SOAP. Use, it, use WCF to build your web service, and that's great. And if you want to build a web service using REST-style principles, great. You should do that. REST is great, and use WCF to build it because we think both of them are great, and we just want to make it possible for people who are using WCF to build either one. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It works either way. Yeah, Not because, you know, there, there's always these people who want to turn this into a war, okay? And I'm just I'm just all about the peace, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give rest a chance. 
That's all we're saying, really. That, that's when it, it. When it comes down to it. <laughs> oh, man. You know, this is the last show of the day, Ron, so. <laughs> Look out. We're a little punchy. <laughs> yep. Well, um, PDC was awesome, and it was vast. What were some of the other things that we saw uh, uh, that, that, that people were talking about .NET for? Oh, oh, yeah. This one, you cannot miss. It's Dublin. Okay. Dublin. And, uh, yes, I've been to Dublin, actually. I, I, uh, I recorded an art cast there. Um, but uh, this is a codename project, Dublin, which is the long-missing application server. And, you know, it's kind of funny. For a long, long time, we resisted, you know, application server. Uh, and we sort of described it in, you know, like there's an application server role. But if you have ever built a, a WCF process or um, Windows Workflow application, you know that WCF and Windows Workflow have no host. I mean, they're, they're kind of lightweight engines, which is good because you can host them in any process you like. But the downside is that you have to build a process to host them in. Right. Uh, and so people have, have for a long time been like, oh, man, you know, I got to go build a Windows service and host my process. And, you know, you can build a simple one. But if you want to build something that's industrial strength. Yeah, it's, it's got to be a, automatically starting Windows service. But are we talking about BizTalk here? It's not BizTalk. Okay. Yeah. And BizTalk is so much more. But um, but what Dublin is is this host. It's a it's a process host that uh, has a nice management surface that has a GUI that's built into the IS manager. But it also uh, has a whole PowerShell commandlet thing, which I totally love uh, because PowerShell rocks. Uh, and yes, it so does. you know now it gives me a place to host the application, an environment that uh, can do some really intelligent things at the management layer and give me more industrial strength uh, services. Like, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Like if I have a farm of servers and they're, and they're all doing workflows and uh, one of the servers gets a hold of a workflow but gets hung for some reason, the other servers are, will, will see that that workflow is locked but they won't be able to pick it up. And the existing version of workflow doesn't handle that situation very well. You have to kind of write your own code to handle this. But Dublin, you know, has a better, more industrial strength solution. So the other servers in the farm will retry that thing eventually and keep going banging at it. And, you know, you have a nice management service to tell you what's happening and you see when the situation's going on. So these are things you could have done in the past, but you had to write the code to do it. Now Dublin makes it really, really possible for you to have this kind of resource now, parts of Dublin are going to ship in the .NET framework itself, but uh, Dublin as a app server thing will ship kind of after .NET 4, within a few months of the release of .NET 4. But I expect that uh, most people will be able to, you know, deploy it in its in its beta form uh, when when .NET 4 releases, and there'll be a you know go live licenses and all that sort of stuff. But it, uh, there's a hands-on lab for Dublin, and I have a screencast, actually, on Channel 9 that you can watch. So um, I know most people who didn't go to the PDC can't get their hands on the bits, okay, because right now they're very, very early bits. We have uh, an Oslo VPC that's available to a very, very small number of people. And outside of people who went to PDC, they can, you know, get their hands on it at the, at the labs. But 
if you just want to see it in action, you can go watch the screencast, and I kind of walk you through the whole process of how it works. Awesome. Yeah, and then, and then of course, Oslo itself is, yep. is really the interesting piece. Now, the thing to remember about Oslo is it's kind of the, to me, it's the driving force of, of a lot of the innovation that's going into .NET 4, but Oslo itself does not ship with .NET 4. Right. It comes later. So if you saw Oslo at the PDC or saw any of the, you know, did any of the hands-on labs with Oslo, you know that what we showed there was what we're calling pre-alpha, just really, really early kind of stuff to give you an idea of what we're doing. Yeah. But it's this environment that supports this very rich model-driven approach to developing the business logic of your services and workflows. Uh, and it's tightly coupled with Windows Workflow and WCF. What I take away from Oslo is that if you look at WCF and WF and .NET 4 just, just by themselves, you might say like, well, I'm not sure I really understand, you know, why they're doing all this animal stuff and where is all that going? But when you see that where this is going is we built out the platform in .NET 4 to support where we want to go with Oslo. And when you uh, see the two together, then you realize that workflows become the way in which business logic surfaces in a model. Because now I can see what the business logic does. There's lots of power in that. Because, you know, I don't know if you've ever been the case where you come on a project, right, and they hand you a mountain of code, and they say, yeah, you're, you're going to be doing this now, so go figure out what all that code does. Man, if, if I had a diagram of some kind of model environment where I could look and see what the code does through models, it's a lot easier to understand, support, and maintain over time. Yeah. Well, and it also, I mean, the great thing about this model is it's, that is actually the implementation as well. So not only am I looking at a model of the app to understand it, I, when I tweak that app, I change the behavior of the app. Yeah, that's always been the, the Achilles heel of modeling in the past, right? Is that, you know, yeah, we created a model, and then, you know, the day that coding started, we threw the model away because it just became irrelevant so quickly. And all attempts to try to keep models in sync with the code just broke down over time. You know, the round tripping and all that stuff. You just never really keep the model in sync with what's happening. So right. this was the big approach here is to say, no, let's make the model the thing that is executing, which is why the workflow is the way you do that. And so if you say, you know, man, I really like the benefits of that model, then you're going to be using workflow. Yeah, so they're all the same thing. Well, the other thing is I'm really looking forward to seeing this bidirectionally, that, that now I can go in and alter code, and I'm going to see those changes in the model. Yeah, so the, the, here's the issue with, with uh, code and, and the model, right? I mean, think about it. If I got you know, 10 lines of code here, what does that look like in a model? I mean, can the model show me what those 10 lines of code do? Not, not really, no. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're a black box to the model. So if I put them in an activity, activities, you know, have they, some representation uh, on the model. And we even built things into workflow that make this richer. So we have the idea of, of scope and variables and data flow. So you can see like, uh, oh, okay, this activity calls that web service. The return value of this activity is the input to that activity that activity says it, it updates the database and this activity is going to do this. So 
now the intention of my code becomes visible. Whereas if I have just, you know, 10, 20, 30 lines of code, the only way it's comprehensible is to go in and read it. And then as you're reading the code, then you have to understand it in its larger context. You know, if it's really well-designed, highly modular code might be easy to understand, but we all know that code isn't always like that, right? So um, our our goal is to provide an environment where uh, these things become easier to understand and visualize through a model. Absolutely. I mean, it's that, that's the power of this whole thing. Uh, and then you get into the whole thing of collaboration around the model, sharing of the model, inheriting pieces of a model. Can I develop a chunk of model that then three apps can work from? And what happens when I update the core piece? I'm sorry, I'm just hopping down the road here. <laughs> did Ron did what about what's up with M? Yeah, so uh, here's the thing. Whenever you show people this kind of graphical design world, you know, dragging and dropping shapes and setting properties, some people really like that. And they're like, yeah, no, I think that's great. And then there's a group of people who are like keyboard guys. Right. And these kind of guys, they hate to take their hand off the keyboard and even touch the mouse, you know. And they're the kind of guys who know every keyboard shortcut in Visual Studio (laughs) to do anything, you know. And... I, I'm kind of more like them, you know. I I do like to know all the keyboard shortcuts, and you know, you just feel like you're you're really flowing, man. And you can kind of pump these things out and don't have to grab the mouse. Well, what we found is that people want to be able to have the choice, you know. Yeah, I, dragging and dropping shapes is cool, but sometimes I just want to describe things in text. And so M is a language that allows me to effectively describe model in a textual form. And so uh, now I can, if I want to write text, I can write text. And so it's a very nice, compact language. And what we found was that um, even in our own process of developing .NET 4, when we're doing a lot of uh, things that require us to create schemas and models, uh, we're doing it with them as a way to kind of feel our way through it. And we found that our own people really like the approach of being able to describe models in text. Now, it's not XML. No, but it gets transformed, right? So it's it's just another representation. I can look at it and I can store it in the in the repository. After all, all that's happening here is these models uh, create instructions that that are going to create schema and objects in the repository, and I can pull them out. I can I can get a XAML representation of it if I want. Um, you know, so I can import and export it to XAML using the Quadrant Designer. And, and in fact, in the labs at PDC, you, you kind of walk through this process. Now, you don't, uh, you know, you can, you see in some labs you're dragging and dropping shapes. In other labs, you're working directly with them. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. It is interesting. I mean, you know, that, uh, you know, you first when you first hear about M, you're like, okay, 
another language, but it really isn't a language like a CLR language, is it? And it isn't really XML because it's not all that declarative. Yeah, it's it's not um, no, it's it's not like the next C sharp. Not it's not right. like you're going to go. Uh, oh, okay, next time we're going to write our program yeah. in M. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's not that. Um, it's it's just really a, a language for declaring these models and and then working with them. And so, yeah, you're still going to write your C sharp or VB dot net or whatever you like, and uh, uh, you you're, you can just have ways of representing the models you want in different forms. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, you're right. Uh, there are those that are that need that notepad experience. The The designers are very slick, though. Yeah, actually, uh, it's kind of neat to see the, the WPF is now surfacing in these in Visual Studio and in Quadrant, the designer. And so the design surfaces, uh, you know, have a much cooler feel to them. And I got to give credit to the... Um, the UX people, uh, both for Quadrant and in Visual Studio, they're actually working very hard on using different design paradigms. Uh, you know, the classic thing is that here's a window, we got vertical and horizontal scroll bars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. They're, they're actually trying to do things like in Quadrant, it's pretty amazing where you have this kind of virtual design surface and there's no scroll bars. And, uh, you know, you, you can create these little work pads that you, you're working with different parts of the model and zoom in and zoom out, and then you just kind of grab the surface and slide it over. Kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, like the Minority Report movie yeah, where exactly. Tom Cruise is like slapping his hand at the virtual screen and sliding things around. I mean, eventually we're going to have that, right? But uh, this is kind of a good first step to it. You sort of sl- slide them around with the mouse. Eventually. Have you seen Surface? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you it's know, here. Th- that would be an interesting experience, quadrant on surface, you know, I'm sure oh, it would yeah. work, but uh, yeah, I mean, we're headed that way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just, it, op- it opens so many possibilities when you start combining these things. It's just a question of uh, what the code really looks like, and I think that's an interesting part of this is that it's one thing to manipulate diagrams but it's almost like we get more confidence when we can go and see the code that that generated even if we never adjust it the fact that it's there and it's sensible gives us some confidence yeah so the thing to keep in mind though is that this is not like the traditional case tools where you used to like declare a bunch of models and then say generate code and it would spew out a bunch of code and then you would right. go see the code and compile it and all that this isn't like that um, because the fact that the model is the thing that executes, uh, if you if you look at what's going to execute in your workflow, you see a bunch of XAML, uh, and the XAML says, you know, this activity, this activity, this activity, set these properties, and this one calls this one, and these variables flow around. There is no code that you're going to see other than whatever code might be in your activities. Uh, now, at first, that might be a little, you know, hard for some people to accept. I mean, I, I remember, um, gosh, back in 1992 when I, the company I was working for in Silicon Valley said, we're going to move to C++. You know, and I was working with all these hardcore C guys, you know, and uh, they didn't trust the C++ compiler, you know, for a long time. They were, uh, they had a hard time with it, you know, and they, uh, in some of the early C++ compilers, really all they did was translate C++ syntax into C and then you ran a C compiler over it, but by this time, nice. you were past that. But you get the point that, 
when these kind of innovations come, uh, at first you kind of have this trust issue. You're like, whoa, is that really going to work? And, you know, how does that really flow? Um, so it does take a little bit of getting used to, just like, you know, when I moved from C to C++, it took some time to get used to the different way of thinking that object-oriented development represented for me. Um, so, work, you know, writing code that works in the workflow environment does represent a little bit of a different way of thinking. Um, if you've written any kind of workflow in .NET 3 or 3.5, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. But it offers a lot of advantages that if, if you take advantage of it, um, you know, I think you're going to like it. So you, first uh, M was D, and then it changed to M. What is, is there a story there? Like, why <laughs> D? I, you know, um, I heard somebody say, oh, it was D because uh, of Don Box. I, I don't know if that's true <laughs> or not. Uh, maybe they figured, uh, well, we got C, you know. C-sharp, maybe D is next. I don't know uh, why they chose D as a code name. Um, and then it was kind of an interesting decision to call the the actual thing M. Um, but, you know, maybe the guys who name languages just have run out of uh, innovation here. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the next language after C. I, M? I don't know where M well, came D. from, though. There's got to be a story yeah. there about well, M. And, and an M just strikes me as model. Yeah. yeah, probably. But yeah, it's an interesting challenge to name a language and argue the need for yet another language. Yeah, and, and in fact, I think, you know, that was my first reaction was when I first heard about it, I was like, oh my gosh, do we need another language? I mean, yeah. come on, guys, we're getting like hammered with so much stuff to learn already. Are you telling me, you know, we're going to have to learn another one? The thing to keep in mind about M is that there's nothing in .NET 4 or Oslo that requires you to learn it. Right. Okay? You, you don't have to. It's kind of an optional thing. And if, you, if you're like, man, I don't have time to learn anything else, great. Just drag and drop shapes. You'll be fine. You won't ever have to learn M. Same goes for XAML, really. You, you don't have to become a XAML guru to be successful in this. And, you know, some people are going to want to learn all the ins and outs of XAML and, and the way it converts things in CLR types and all that. That's fine if you want to learn it, but you don't have to uh, to be successful. Do you think that there's going to be a new niche of developer out there, the DSL uh, programmer, the guy who makes the DSL, and then the rest of the poor schlubs who use it? Yeah, yeah I imagine possibly. And, and here's why I think that's true is that, you know, very often when you get into large organizations, I'm talking places where there's hundreds of developers. Yeah. Um, the biggest problem these guys have, these shops have, is they tell me, they say, like, our biggest problem is consistency. You know, uh, we want things done in a consistent way because we can't afford to have, you know, 500 different ways of doing X. Right. And right. and so a lot of the time, the way these guys have tried to solve that problem is by creating, you know, frameworks. And they go, you must use, you know, our corporate framework or whatever, and you have to use it this way. And you got to say that with a German accent, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have big classes and they force people and all that. And, and look, we all know that uh, if you if you try to mandate this sort of thing, it's difficult because people are always looking for a way around it. Uh, so... What what we've typically found is that the best way to get developers to do something is to make their life easier 
And if they go, man, that makes my life easier, they'll just kind of gravitate towards it. So if I were in that kind of environment, let's say I got, you know, a thousand developers who are working on, you know, things in our organization. If I could make a DSL that makes it dead simple for them to get their work done, and typically these kind of organizations say, I want, you know, 990 of those thousand developers, I want them writing business logic. I don't want them thinking twice about, you know, framework style code. I want them writing core business logic because that's where they're adding a lot of value. So I'm going to spew out a DSL that makes it real easy for them to do what they got to do, get their work done quickly, and focus on the business value. Right. And that's what all of these innovations have been. This is where all the technology advancements have been going, I think, in the last few years. Separation of concerns, uh, decoupling, making it easier for maintainability, making it easier for testability, and making it easier to focus on exactly what you need to do without wrecking the rest of the application. It's all about productivity, man. That's that's what they tell me. You know, everybody says we got far more work to do than we have hours and budget to get done. We have to increase the productivity of people. And that was, you know, right from the get-go, um, last January, I got to go to Athens, uh, not Athens, Georgia, but the big Athens over in Greece. I and, thought Athens, uh, Georgia was the big Athens. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I went over there and uh, and I did a keynote address with with Bill Gates and uh, so um, Bill actually spoke first and then uh, I came out and I talked about Oslo and uh, so one of the things we said is that Oslo the driving force behind this was to dramatically increase productivity not just a little bit I mean we're shooting for you know ten times more productive. Than, than we are today, which is a, a, a humongous goal. It's an incredible leap. If, if we come even close to that, I'll be amazed. Uh, but, you know, we're being aspirational here. We're, we're shooting for the stars. But this is what ta- it takes to significantly change the model. If we're really going to tear up the way we're doing things, we need this dramatic improvement. Yeah, and, you know, from time to time, these, these kind of changes come, and sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. You know, we're making a big bet. We're going to learn from it. We're going to press ahead and and see where we land. But it also strikes me that this is why it made sense to to come to PDC with this. Is this is the early look? Let's see how you know people react and how they grab onto this. Are we going in the right direction? And speaking of early looks, Ron, it would wouldn't be a Donnie Rock show if I didn't ask you to ruin your career and give us some timelines. <laughs> well, uh, so you know the next release of of. Visual Studio is codenamed Dev10, and uh, there's an interesting alignment of uh, of that codename of, of Visual Studio 2010 and the calendar. So I guess I would leave it at, at that just to say that <laughs> interesting alignments happen sometimes. Wow, that is an interesting alignment, isn't it? I wonder yeah. what that means. <laughs> Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Excellent. Ron, is there anything else that you want to uh, throw out there before we wrap it up? Um, let me just put in a plug for my new show. Sure. Uh, yeah, so, you know, people ask me, hey, Ron, you know, so you quit doing our cast. Are you, are you doing a, a podcast now? And I say, absolutely. I created a new show. We call it Endpoint TV. 
Nice. Uh, and you can just go to HTTP whack whack endpoint dot TV. And I guess I enriched that little South Pacific Island once more by registering a domain. Uh, and anyway, they, <laughs> uh, so on this uh, show, it's, it's about what happens at an endpoint. And of course, in WCF, when you expose a web service, you got an endpoint, right? So it's about WCF and workflows and um, business logic and service-oriented architecture and, and all those kind of things. Uh, we have a number of shows about REST and the REST Starter Kit, and, and uh, I created hands-on lab tasks from the PDC labs. So for all the people who are like, man, you know, I didn't get to go to PDC, and I would love to try these things out. Well, okay, maybe you can't get your hands on the bits right now, but you can go and watch a, a hands-on lab cast, and you can watch me kind of walking through it and explaining how these things work and what they are. So that way you get at least a feel for what's coming. That sounds great. Ron, it's been a pleasure, and uh, keep doing what you do. You do it so well. Oh, thanks so much, guys. It's been really fun, uh, finally, to get here on .NET yeah, Rocks. kind of embarrassed. It is a little embarrassing. You know, almost 400 shows in, and we see each other at conferences all the time, but never actually, you know, bid on the show. Well, we got a chance to talk at TechEd, and I think there's a video up there somewhere at the fishbowl techedonline.com where we got to talk but uh, other than that it's it's too bad but uh, thanks again and and Ozzo looks great and uh, .NET 4 looks awesome I can't wait alright thanks again and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.